0: Welcome to What's Next, Hornet Global's podcast that puts members on the mic for thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary.
1: Today, we're quite lucky to have Jack Noon join us. And so I suppose, yeah, we'll kick off by, you know, talking about, you know, a healthy building and what that actually is. And when I think of what an end-of-trip facility was back then, which was mainly just a couple of bike racks drilled down to an empty car park in the basement, it seems that, you know, we've moved leaps and bounds, not in in terms of sustainability, but also in terms of wellness as well. I suppose, Jack, for those of us on the call, could you just sort of, you know, explain to us, uh, you know, what a healthy building is and why it's important?
2: Yeah, for sure. So thanks, everyone, for joining. Firstly, so um, I work for an organisation called the International Building Institute. Uh, we're headquartered in New York City, but we've got about 100 people uh, internationally now, including a, a small but growing team uh, here in Australia. And essentially, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to progress uh, this healthy buildings movement. So the way that I really like to frame it is that, you know, the, the physical and social environment is the number one determinant of our health. It's more, uh, it's more important to our health than our access to medical care. It's more important to our health than our genetics. The physical and social environment has a huge impact on our health. The average Australian will live to 84 years. 74 years of that average Australian's life sent, will be spent indoors. Uh, about five years of that average Australian's life will be spent outdoors, which is a little bit depressing. And less than five years of that uh, average Australian's life will be spent in transit. So on trains or in cars or stuff like that. So... We're actually spending a stack of time indoors. And what we're really trying to focus on is how can we make those spaces be spaces where people thrive? I, when I first started my career, um, I was a building, building scientist, a building consultant, and I would go into spaces and I would deal with sick building syndrome. It's the idea that you've got occupants within a building that are, get, that are getting sick from the building, whether that be due to poor ventilation or poor material selection, you know, uh, itchy eyes, runny nose, that kind of stuff. And the idea of a, of a sick building or sick building syndrome isn't a new concept. I mean, this is a term that was coined in the 1980s. It's, it's long been established that our buildings can have an effect on our health. But what we're really trying to do at the International World Building Institute is we're trying to kind of flip that narrative a little bit to say that it's no longer good enough just to be in, an, in a building that doesn't cause you harm. If you're spending so much time in these buildings, if the physical and social environment is the number one determinant of your health... Why wouldn't you want to make those spaces actually improve the health and well-being of the people within it? And to some degree, I think that, I think that it's a little bit better now. But when, when I first started my career, I felt like we had almost lost the very reason why we actually design and operate our buildings. And at the end of the day, it's for people. And it's to, to, to provide a, a positive human experience for people. So that's what we're really trying to do. And that's what a healthy building I guess the, the the idea of a healthy building is all about. It's not just about not making you sick and limiting harm. It's actually about promoting the good and enhancing people's health and well-being.
1: Yeah, and I suppose kind of some be financial drivers, obviously, not just particularly in the US when you look at the model there. That. You know, a lot of employees have health insurance through their employer. So the employer's facilities does have a direct impact on their health, but on, also on the person and, you know, their access to health care as well. Listening to a book recently, I think, The Healthy Workplace Nudge, that talks about Delos and sort of the increase in wellbeing initiatives. But, um, you know, we've also seen it here happen in Australia as well. And this, again, is financial impacts. That's why a lot of employers do provide, you know, flu vaccines, for instance, because they don't want you to get sick because know there's a direct benefit of them having you still you know being able to work and come into the workplace as well I suppose Jack I was wondering if you can maybe talk to some of the sort of short and long-term trends that you're seeing in the workplace hopefully I suppose sort of post-COVID and hopefully that sometime soon
2: yeah I think um, I mean it's a pretty big question I think obviously given that we're we're in a a global pandemic at the moment um, the short-term trends are really focused around responding to the global pandemic and this is something that we've spent you know, a huge amount of time on at IWBI. To be perfectly honest, I've certainly never had a busier time in my career um, as what I do right now, because there's never been a um, more interest in healthy buildings and health and wellbeing generally. And I think that we've all got a responsibility to, to provide some sort of, um, to shine a light on the, on the power of, of place and the, on, on the power of our buildings. Um, in terms of some of the short-term trends, I definitely think there's some trends around reducing surface contact, some trends around uh, reducing densities i think australia is a is a quite a unique market in terms of density uh, particularly even if you think of co-working type of environments where you know, we are trying to pack as many people into spaces as, as possible. I think that that's definitely a trend that, we're, that, that we've moved away from. There is definitely a trend around emergency preparedness. I think if you look across the world, the organisations that have responded best to COVID, the cities and the countries that have responded best to COVID have been organisations or, or cities or countries that have had good emergency preparedness plans in place. And that's a key aspect of a healthy building or a healthy workplace as well but also organisations that have got things like business continuity plans in place. So, you know, one day many of us were probably working in an office and the next day we're suddenly all working from home. Did your organisation have the infrastructure in place to support that? Many organisations did, but we know from the research that approximately 40% of uh, organisations actually didn't uh, encourage or allow working from home. That's certainly a short-term trend that that, that we're definitely seeing change. Some of the kind of other longer-term trends, I think, is this rise of the chief wellness officer, which I think is a really interesting uh, trend. And this is actually, rather than just having a, a head of HR, having somebody that is responsible at the C-suite for an organization's he- health and well-being. I think that that's, that's a key trend and, and moving towards this kind of culture of health within organisations. A couple of other kind of longer-term trends, I think, involve making the invisible visible. And what I mean by that is that we've had a global pandemic. We're faced, with, faced up against a virus that we can't see. And one thing that our workplaces and our buildings have been shifting towards, but really haven't kind of taken that giant leap, is this idea of making the invisible visible. How do you know that the air quality within your space is okay? How do you know that the water quality within your space is okay? How do you know the, the impact that, you, that the lighting system has on your health and well-being? I think a lot of this kind of, more prominent education, more prominent kind of messaging around how our spaces affect our health and well-being is definitely going to be a longer-term trend as a result of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, and I've I've certainly seen some videos emerging online, you know, getting as uh, tech-savvy as looking to, you know, sort of circulate the air in meeting rooms more to minimise the risk of uh, infection if there's more sort of, you know, greater airflow uh, and it's not as stagnant with, you know, viral load accumulating over time, but there are other sort of simple measures as well. And, you know, we talk about high touch surfaces and trying to automate doors and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, there are a few sort of simple tools out there, like a little keychain, I think bottle opener that you can use to poke and pull doors open and that kind of stuff as well. And so, you know, we're sort of seeing some workplaces provide those as their sort of reentry package as well. I mean, just the other day, my JLL branded face mask arrived in the mail. So. <laughs> Even though it's probably going to be a while before i go back into the office you know little things like that i think are going sort of a long way as well but it, it you know it's interesting jack that uh notion of a chief wellness officer that you mentioned we we're talking about the role of um cameron you know in his workplace he's actually a um, mental health officer much to the equivalent of say a first aider or a fire warden so yeah would you be able to sort of expand a bit more on that uh, notion of sort of social sustainability
2: yeah i think just on one point that i really feel like i need to emphasize is that when we think about a healthy building or a healthy workplace a healthy space isn't one that just focuses on air quality it just isn't one that just focuses on material selection and it isn't one that just focuses on mental health a healthy workplace or a healthy building is one that needs to touch on all elements of health and well-being and that includes physical health and well-being social health and well-being and mental health and well-being. So one thing that we've really seen in relation to social sustainability, a lot of the time, so I come from a kind of a broad kind of building and sustainability background, and a lot of the time when I'm talking to former colleagues, they say, you know, this, this well-building standard, is it a is it a sustainability rating tool? And I always answer yes, because even though it's focused on health and well-being, the way that we think about sustainability has changed significantly over the last few years. And you just need to, if, if any of you haven't seen or Aren't across uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, I highly recommend that you get across the UN SDGs because. It is reframing what we think about sustainability. Sustainability isn't just about reducing carbon emissions. It isn't just about water efficiency. It isn't just about biodiversity. It's about all of those things, but much, much more. And this idea of social sustainability has really kind of come to the fore because uh, organisations are making decisions and looking at sustainability in terms of ESG frameworks. And ESG frameworks stand for environmental, social and governance frameworks this is kind of this new, I guess, lens that investors are looking at sustainability with. Environmental sustainability has been relatively easy to quantify. You know, how much energy do you use in your building? Uh, what's your carbon abatement? What's your, what, how much water you use? Governance is also relatively simple to quantify or to measure or to, or to demonstrate, particularly as it relates to an Australian context. What type of risk management practices have you got in place? What type of diversity do you have on your boards and that kind of thing? Social sustainability has been notoriously quite difficult to measure. And what social sustainability is really looking at it are things like health and well-being. It's looking looking at things around social impact. It's also looking at things like uh, gender diversity, diversity and inclusion, accessibility, universal design. And this is one of the reasons why, in my opinion, there's been so much increased interest in health and well-being and well-certification. Because for so long, it's been very difficult to provide a framework around these kind of social sustainability initiatives. Uh, and increasingly, investors are actually looking at certifications like the well-building standard to actually provide some sort of quantifiable framework around this idea of social sustainability.
1: Yeah, it's, it's certainly been an evolution. Like I'm, I remember back in the you know old days, though, they had sort of triple bottom line reporting where you know, you kind of had the financial and you had the environment there that you're quantifying as well. But you're right that that social impact is much harder to sort of quantify. But even though it's hard, many organisations are still doing more in that sort of um, space. Like, you know, we see many businesses now have their sort of reconciliation action plans in place and looking to, you know, increase the amount that, you know, sort of Indigenous involvement they ha- their organisations have. And, you know, it makes me think of that report I saw from Supply Nation, you know, particularly around the time government was looking at doing its Indigenous procurement policy. And, you know, they were just trying to get, I think, what, about four, maybe five percent. Mm. Of all the procurement government spend that they do going to you know majority owned indigenous businesses, but for every dollar that went to indigenous businesses, uh, Supply Nation found that typically that led to a social return on investment of nearly three to four dollars. So the impact can be quite profound.
2: I think also what we're seeing is this kind of increased engagement with social enterprises as well. The last kind of time that I was actually in 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 Melbourne CBD, and um, it was at Arup's workplace, which is a well platinum certified space. One of the great things about that workplace is that they've got Street, which is a social enterprise that runs their cafe, and that's another example of how do we engage kind of disadvantaged youth or disadvantaged kind of communities and, and give them opportunities through the decision making that we make. So yeah, I think that that is another really good example of this kind of rise of of social sustainability and you know this kind of this broader thinking around health and wellbeing because we're not just thinking about health and wellbeing you know, at the individual level. We need to be thinking about health and well-being in terms of how it relates to our communities. And how do we, you know, it's all well and good to have this really high-performing space, this space that just focuses on the productivity of an individual employee, but we're really missing an opportunity to think about how the workplace interacts with the wider community. And that's one thing that we've been very, very conscious of at IWBI, how do we actually promote that kind of interaction between the place and the wider community?
1: I suppose it's worth calling out that social enterprise doesn't necessarily mean (laughs) non-for-profit. They they can actually make a profit. But, you know, again, we're sort of talking about the social return on investment. They'll generally sort of, you know, look to invest that back and uh, I suppose do a lot more good as well. So, you know, Street in particular, I know a number of clients now that look to embed their cafes there, not only because it's a social enterprise, but then it also, you know, helps us with the actual culture internally that they have a space for their employees to sit, relax, but then also they do see that social return on investment as well. Like another one that comes to mind is a social enterprise called Good Cycles uh, down yeah. in Melbourne. Yep. But what they also do is, that they, so they provide disadvantaged youths, I suppose, with the skills to become bike mechanics and essentially either open up their own business or at the very least get work experience so they can jump back into the workforce um, that they've maybe been out of for a while as well. But you know, they equally partner with Street and other social enterprises in curing their catering food around the city of Melbourne. You know when we're allowed in it. So you know they, they do a lot of good work themselves, but they also have a lot of partnerships as well. And it's you know kind of an you know, intertwined ecosystem.
2: And this is one of the things we at IWBI we like to talk about. Um, I guess some of the silver linings of, of COVID nineteen, some of the good things that are kind of coming out of COVID nineteen. And it's really difficult. I I must admit I, I sometimes find it difficult to put the term COVID-19 and silver linings or opportunities in kind of the same kind of uh, sentence, because obviously it's just been such a, a horrific experience for so many people. But there are these like many silver linings where you're starting to see, you know, social enterprises that are popping up that are really, you know, getting some significant opportunities as a result of this, you know, as a result of this pandemic.
1: I have got a question just um, sent across to me uh, now. But you know, well, the question here was just sort of wondering, I suppose, you know, as we go back to the workplace, what are some, you know, simple sort of low hanging fruit measures or interventions we can sort of look to implement in our own workplace to try and sort of, you know, increase the well-being and sort of, you know, health of our employees in the workplace?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, I think short term. So one thing that we've, we've recently done at IWBI is, is launched this idea of a well health safety rating, which is really focused on some key low hanging fruit kind of strategies that, that focus on quick easy wins in terms of facility management operational practices and that kind of stuff a lot of those focus around cleaning and sanitization so that's one that i think is a is is a very obvious one i know that a lot of people are are probably sick of being told to wash their hands on a regular basis but you know the reality is is that that it has a huge impact on on uh, viral transmission but even beyond that looking at how you can we mentioned it before: reduce uh, surface contact. Some other kind of quick wins, I would say, is really understanding or asking your facility manager, basically, around what the the capability of your HVAC system is. With the health safety rating, we're not we're not proposing that organisations go out and like rip out their HVAC systems and replace them or anything like that. But really, having an understanding of like what your air conditioning system is capable of so you know you may Brian you mentioned before this idea of increasing the amount of fresh air within a meeting room increasing ventilation is a key is a key strategy it doesn't just have a have an impact in terms of in terms of viral transmission and covid-19 but it actually has a huge impact on productivity we've known this for i would say 20 30 years but often we just kind of forget about it because once again it's harder to quantify an organisation's productivity or an individual's productivity, it's very easy to quantify energy efficiency. So often we kind of compromise ventilation and at the expense of energy efficiency, which has been quite unfortunate. So increasing ventilation rates, I think, is quite important. One thing that I think is, is really important when people return back to the to the office is understanding Legionella. This is one of the key aspects of the health safety rating as well. Unfortunately, everyone on this call would probably know that our buildings, our places aren't meant to be dormant. They're not meant to be, not meant to just kind of switch them off and then go back and turn them back, back on again and expect everything to, it's not like you're, you're flicking a switch. Um, unfortunately, what we've already started to see in, in certain pockets across the world, including Australia, is that when individuals are going back to the workplace uh, post a lockdown, Legionella issues start to emerge. And uh, one thing that I think a lot of a lot of our community don't really recognise is that COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 is not a particularly resilient virus. It's a virus that is relatively easy to kill. It's a a virus that that doesn't need, you know, very kind of complex chemicals to kill it. But Legionella is a pretty resilient little bacteria and uh, it, it kind of accumulates within our water pipes. It's not just a cooling tower issue. It's a potable water issue as well. It's an end of trip facility issue because it gets kind of stuck in shower heads and stuff like that. So one thing that I would say is that when you return to work, think about Legionella because particularly if we've got stagnant water in our pipes, that hasn't been flushed over a long period of time. If you've got end of trip facilities that haven't been used because everyone's too scared to kind of commute into work, everyone's been driving into work and, you know, showers haven't been used, really think about Legionella. That's a that's a really key point as well.
1: So I was wondering if Jackie could sort of just talk through, through like, you know, well, workplace design and how it can impact on, health i suppose from a sort of well-building standard
2: yeah so the way that we kind of we, we always kind of uh, treat the well-building standard is we've got 10 different concepts and when i kind of said at the start that it, it's not good enough to have like a, a healthy space that just focuses on mental health or just focuses on air quality it really needs to be a holistic view of health and the 10 concepts that we really look at are air water light nourishment uh, movement thermal comfort acoustics mind and community. And I think I probably missed one of them, Uh, materials as well, sorry. I always miss, I always get nine out of 10. But it's really important that all of, I guess, all of those kind of concepts are considered in terms of the design of a space. So in terms of air quality, like I mentioned, we're looking at ventilation, rates, we're looking at uh, the actual air quality within the space, but we're also, there's this very key kind of interaction between air quality and material selection. So we're really looking at, you know, in terms of workplace design, how can you actually bring materials in that aren't going to actually harm human health? Uh, This includes cleaning products, but it also includes furniture, includes, you know, carpet, includes wall treatment, ceiling treatment. So we really need to be thinking about material selection from a water quality perspective. um, I mean, obviously a lot of kind of high end office buildings will have things like zip filters. Um, Zip filters uh, are great, not just because they're giving you a a good quality, good quality water, but you're you're basically they're filtered and they're filtered for microbial contamination as well as, uh, as well as dissolved solids. Um, Lighting is something that we're seeing as a real key trend. And this, this is something that I think Australia is a little bit behind on. This idea of circadian lighting where, you know, you go into your, where your lighting basically mimics the outside or your lighting actually mimics the circadian rhythm. So what I mean by that is that when you go into an office space between, you know, nine and 12 o'clock, you really want kind of bright bluer light because you want to stay alert. And then at like four or five o'clock in the afternoon, you want that light to kind of become warmer in nature because you want to kind of uh, scale things down. That's a key trend that we're seeing across Australian uh, workplaces. Uh, It's something that's probably has only just started to emerge in Australia because I think we're, we're a little bit further behind in terms of some, some lighting considerations here. Movement's pretty obvious. How do you actually encourage movement? The best seating a solution is actually a church pew uh, is because it's the most uncomfortable and it actually makes you get up and move around so we're really trying to actually i mean i'm delivering this particular conversation this uh standing up because i just can't sit at my desk for eight hours and unfortunately when we move to a home environment as well this is something that we forget because you know when you're in a workplace You're encouraged to get up. You've got that meeting in the meeting room. You get up, you walk to that meeting room. You walk to the kitchen. You walk to speak to a colleague. When you're working from home, I don't know about you guys, but I'm finding that I'm sicking a lot more. And whenever I get on the phone for a phone call, I have to stand up and actually have to walk around my back garden. Otherwise, I just feel like I'm really quite sedentary. So that's another kind of key aspect. In terms of mental health, I think that this is one very easy way to kind of promote mental health is this idea of biophilia. So, Brian, I can see behind you, you've got this, uh, this really nice-looking plant behind it, you.
1: It's fake. Sorry. <laughs> it's fake.
2: <laughs> well, actually, actually, um, a lot of research that's coming out of uh, Asia is actually saying that for a lot of populations, it doesn't matter if it's real or fake because people just want to see nature. They want to be connected to nature. Mm. I think in Australia, it's a little bit different. We want to kind of see that kind of real aspect of
1: nature. But that's well, a really I mean, easy intervention. Well I mean there's all other like I mean in workplace strategy we bring it comes up all the time. Like we ask employees what they want and they want more green greenery. But yeah, you know, we do probe a little bit further to understand why because of, you know, you can get greenery just for the sake of it or you can have it for privacy, aesthetic, air quality. All these sort of range of things. And, you know, I, I think um, you're, you're right in that, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter if it's plastic because there have been equally, um, you know, studies done and, you know, having light diffused by uh, greenery tends to, you know, have a better effect, again, with the sort of circadian rhythm. So, yeah, I, I think it's just important to have it. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't matter if it's real or not.
2: Well even blue space i mean that 's something I mean often we, we, we refer to biophilia as this idea of like plants and and um, and green space, but even blue space in terms of like having a water feature or i mean for, personally for me, the sound of a water feature just kind of annoys me quite a bit um, but having a view of of um, some blue space can be really effective as well to people 's me- mental uh, well being i 've often worked in. When I, when I mentioned kind of these sick building syndrome uh, type issues, environments that I was actually brought into were basement type environments. And, and, you know, you're brought into environments where people weren't happy within the space. They were complaining that they were getting sick from the space. And actually, they were, quite, they were basement type spaces where they weren't getting any natural light. There was no kind of sense of biophilia whatsoever um these were generally like old heritage buildings across melbourne and sydney where they couldn't actually do much about it but there was just a kind of zero appreciation for the actual space that these occupants were in and unfortunately we are very engaged with the facility management kind of group because for too long you know facility managers have kind of been put into the type of a basement environments, and they've been responsible for the health and well-being of in terms of air quality in terms of water quality in terms of lighting for all of the occupants within the building but you actually look at the spaces that they're put in and they're doing nothing it's it's not they're not health promoting environments and we actually, um, we've coined the term Billy in the Basement because unfortunately, this is something that came up with, with a lot of the work that we do with Lendlease. And they said, you know, from a well building perspective, you're, you're rewarding us for doing, as a developer, you're rewarding us for providing all these great policies and, and um, great interventions to this Billy in the Basement, which is the facility manager. And one counter that we made to that was was that, you know, Billy in the basement, if you have a look at Billy in the basement in terms of the facility manager, unfortunately, that individual is often a middle aged man who is generally overweight, who uh, doesn't get access to a healthy work environment, doesn't get access to healthy food, doesn't get access to healthy wellness programming as Lendlease, them actually providing some sort of policy that affects not just that building in the basement, but all of their facility management team across Australia, that kind of culture of health across the building as well.
1: I suppose thinking that uh, our workplaces not only involve offices, but also the home, uh, you mentioned, you know, sort of walking a bit. Um, unfortunately, most of my walks are only to and from the fridge these days, which isn't so good for me. But yeah, I suppose—is there anything we can do in our you know, home work environments that could sort of uplift you know, us in terms of well-being?
2: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things, and it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. I mean, I normally work from home. I travel a lot, but but when I'm not travelling, um, I work from home. So uh, it's this kind of uh, this new normal is kind of uh, my old normal, so to speak. <laughs> one thing that I one one piece of advice that I often give to 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 people is. Um, setting boundaries around your workday so at the start of the workday taking a walk around the block uh, and when you walk into your door that's the start of your work day. and at the end of the day walking around your block uh, to finish your workday and when you walk back into the into your front door that's the end of your workday and you're in you're in a home life I found that to be incredibly effective when I first started at IWBI and I was working at working from home I found that kind of that blending of home and work life really, really difficult. So that would be one piece of advice. In terms of ventilation, it's really important. Everybody, Most people would have windows, um, opening up a window and and getting that ventilation through your space is is really important. Uh, Ergonomics is incredibly important as well. And what we've seen is some of the most progressive organisations that have adapted to, to this kind of working from home environment have actually provided funding support for individuals to go out and purchase a sit-stand desk or to purchase a new uh, work chair or to purchase a, you know, something as simple as a keyboard and a mouse um, rather than having just a, a, a laptop that really doesn't encourage good ergonomic type behaviours. Another thing is really kind of in line with the first thing that I kind of mentioned around, around kind of setting boundaries around your work, really limiting the amount of screen time that you have, particularly at night, because obviously that has an impact on circadian rhythms I think a lot of the time in this kind of new normal that we're in, we're probably on the laptop a lot later than what we probably were previously because there isn't that kind of disconnect between your home, work, your home environment and your work environment. So really trying to be conscious of your circadian rhythms and the amount of blue light that is actually coming from things like your iPhone or your iPad or your, or your laptop, I think is something to really be conscious of.
1: Yeah. And like, you know, there are some simple settings as well, putting it on night mode and all that sort of stuff where, so you, if you must be on it, then, you know, at least it's a little bit better for you, but yeah, that whole sort of delineating between start work and end work as well can be quite difficult given, you know, most of us do work for national, if not global companies. And when you have timelines starting to blur.
2: The well certification process is something that's been around for probably about five years. Um, There's a number of kind of interventions or strategies that organizations must do in order to achieve that well certification in that way it's, a, it's I guess it's a somewhat of a rigorous process to to really be able to demonstrate what does you know world leadership look like in terms of health and well-being and it also is supported by a performance test I will say that we do have a individual accreditation called the well-accredited professional that if individuals are interested in in this kind of idea of health and wellness at a building or workplace or or even at an individual level, I would highly encourage you to have a look at the well-accredited professional designation.
1: Amanda, I suppose, you know, from our last discussion, the event you hosted with Cameron uh, talking about that, um, you know, sort of wellbeing officer. Do you just want to give us a little bit of an update on that little story you've shared with me recently? (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, definitely. Uh, So the Young Leader event we hosted a couple of months ago, which we briefly touched on, was about mental health officers and first aid officers. And the company that I work at, we didn't have that. And that wasn't something that anyone had really, I guess, discussed. And I took it as a personal action item following that meeting to, well, um, yeah, event to at least bring it up as a discussion point. I mean ACE sent it off to our executives and it actually got endorsed and approved. So we're now in the process of finalising where we'll get the qualification and training from for our employees across the country in every office. So from a small conversation to I think a huge impact, which won't just impact our current employees, but the culture from Forever. I truly think that it's, you know, we're updating all our posters, not just to have first aid, but it's all about mental health and how it's equally as important. So that was one conversation which I think will have huge impacts across a business of now with our new merger nearly 40,000 employees. So huge Excellent. impacts.
1: Excellent. Well, look, uh, Jack, again, thank you so much for your time. Awesome.